This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. And this week, we caught up with Michael Tenenbaum. What a character. I've known him for a long time. And his history on Wall Street, first at Bear Stearns, then striking out on his own, creating a namesake investment fund out in California, and then moving to Puerto Rico. This is a guy who's definitely lived life and still doing so. Here's our conversation. Well, and this is a guy that I've actually known for a number of years. He also, I should say, big tennis fan, and mm-hmm. he's joining us on the in the aftermath, I should say, of one of the most exciting U.S. Opens. But we're not going to talk about that. We might a little bit. <laughs> Michael Tenenbaum is here. The new book, Risk, Living on the Edge. It's an unbelievable read, really captures the scope of what you've been doing Uh for a number of years now. Thank you so much for joining us in New York. It is a pleasure and an honor, particularly to hear that you enjoyed my book. It makes me happy. We loved it. And I think in part because your story is really one of Wall Street over the last four decades in many ways. Why did you decide to write it? Let's start there. Well, it was interesting, actually. I was interviewed uh, at uh, Bloomberg. You've heard of them. Heard of them. And, and afterward, and, and this is not uh, a hint, uh, the, uh, the, the journalist said, let's go across the street and have some drinks. And I said, you know, a number of my more famous friends have written memoirs. And I was just wondering, I'm sure it was competitive, right, uh, if perhaps I should. And, and he said something so smart. He said, if you have a story to tell. Right. And I said, well, you know, I'm not nearly as famous. He said, if you have a story to tell. So because I was an army officer, I learned to keep records. You live by your file when you're a bureaucrat. And I had all these records, which I organized by topic and then in chronology. And I realized I did some pretty cool stuff. And, and so I started writing uh, my first effort. And I gave it to my son, Andrew, who manages screenwriters, and he says, this is really interesting. This is good. Now get a writer. <laughs> so I realized mostly I'd written reports, right? Yeah. So I was very fortunate. Uh, we, we met uh, Donna Beach, who's a very wonderful uh, ghostwriter, I guess. And, uh, and she made this book into something really interesting. You know, if I would mention someone's name, she would go do research and have, have this color that she added. So it made me a much more aware reader of other people's yeah. books. So that's how it happened. Well, we want to talk to you about your time on Wall Street, but I do want to just go into, because the title of the book is Risk, Living on the Edge, and that's a common thread. And you talk about risk, you know, by your grandmother. You talk about risk by your father, just in terms of coming to the United States and the risk that you've taken on throughout your life. Not everybody takes on risk. Well, that's really the theme of the book, because the other thing I was advised, get a central idea. That's something you learned in English, right? I forgot it. So uh, I began looking for a common thread, and I began talking to my super successful, more famous friends who keep working even though they're rich. And I said, you know, what is it? I mean, how have you managed your life? When you came to choices, which one did you take? And they would ramble on. I'd say, you see, each time you selected a difficult college, you selected a difficult course, you selected a difficult career. I said, do you understand that you have a propensity toward risk? And they thought about it, and I said, yeah. And then I said, and, and by the way, it's because the way your brain is wired, you have uh, a shortage maybe of serotonin, so you need more stimulus than mm-hmm. other people. And, and finally, why don't you quit? You've got fame and money. 
And then they still sort of, you know, get, uh, pretend to be reflective and they say, well, I like it or what else would I do or, you know, uh, I don't know. And I said, I'll tell you why. You're addicted. And then they get very quiet because that's, that's a emotionally no, loaded thing. But it's true. Your brain wiring doesn't change and you keep going. And I became aware of that when I sort of retired to Puerto Rico four years ago. I thought I would read and write and, you know, hang at the beach. And I just I couldn't do it. I mean, and, and I didn't go buying bonds either. Well, I did. I bought Puerto Rican bonds. Right, right. So, but you see There's what I mean. There's some risk there. But you yeah. see what I mean. Yeah. Right. You know, you, you get addicted to a certain way of of working, and and you get uncomfortable. I mean, you know, if I bought Treasury bills, I would I'd be nervous that yeah. the inflation would be back, which I think it is, <laughs> by the way. But you talk about educated risk, right? Risk with some skills, right? Because there are people who take risk and they really you know run into trouble. But you talk about that in your book about having kind of a certain level of skills combined with risk creates incredible opportunities. But that's ever so important, what you said. Uh, Ill-prepared risk-taking is disastrous. I mean, you may get rich for a while, you're a child of your time, you know, and then boom, you, you give it back. So uh, when you look at particularly those mountain climbers, like in Free Solo, you know, the preparation is extraordinary. Yeah. And you mentioned the tennis. Just imagine how hard those people work all year to be able to endure five hours of asymmetric, you know, torquing of your frame. Right. So preparation is vital. And if you also have the risk appetite, the two usually lead to success, I believe. So speaking of risk, you were on Wall Street at a very well-known house, Bear Stearns, at a time when in some ways, risk was really coming into vogue in a, in a lot of ways. What did you experience? What did you identify vis-a-vis -vis risk when you were at Bear Stearns? It was interesting because, as you say, Wall Street changed. Uh, it was years before pension plans and insurance companies could buy stocks. You know, people traded in bonds. That's what they did. When uh, I went to Wall Street uh, beginning of 1962, uh, a couple of my classmates went to Morgan Stanley. They told me that their balance sheet, their net worth then was $5 million. They didn't take risks. You know, they, they, once they were in a good club, they went there right. and they got business. So uh, this changed over time as, as uh, the commission structure eroded and the uh, fat income and profits of Wall Street was attacked. They had to take more and more risk, and that's how they survived. And uh, they put their money at risk in order to get transactions, block trades, for example. And, and risk then became, I think, almost a central idea of, of Wall Street and, and uh, universal banks. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you don't do well, you see recently the earnings reports where trading profits were down. And uh, now you have margins being squeezed. So, you know, that usually human behavior is pretty durable. Right. So talk to us specifically about Bear Stearns, because it really is one of the most storied houses. doesn't exist anymore. We all know that uh, all too well. You were on to your next adventure before that demise. But what was it specifically about that firm that, that made it different? Because you had a lot of very senior jobs there. Well, it was interesting. Uh, when uh, Bear Stearns' management, top management changed, it was usually by what I call in the book brute force. Yeah. Uh, Cy Lewis uh, made money trading bonds during the Depression, and he pushed out the founders and, and took control. And they were smart enough to see they didn't want to lose talent. So they let him do it, and they stuck around. This was a rather civilized way in Darwinian world to, to do things. Then uh, Alan Greenberg, Jerry Kohlberg, 
uh, John Rosenwald and Sig Warsager were the four most productive partners in the uh, early 60s. And they went to the then senior partners like Cy Lewis and said, we're going to leave if we don't take mm-hmm. over. And once again, brute force. The, the older partners were clever enough to realize they didn't want to lose people like this. Uh, but the, the, the change that broke that was when Jimmy Kane, uh, through an extraordinary Machiavellian uh, campaign, uh, took control uh, by first getting control over compensation, which is the key to Wall Street's right. heart. And uh, the, um, eventually uh, uh, he had control, but he had not ever uh, managed a large, mm. successful department. So this was different. And uh, uh, with uh, extraordinary risk-taking, as I point out in the book, the change in composition of the balance sheet was amazing. And the fact that they chose to finance it with short-term money, which was very cheap, which boosted the return on equity, which is how the bonus system worked, right. you know, was an extraordinary risk. Illiquid assets, overnight financing, bad combination. Right, which ultimately led to their demise come the financial crisis. Well, as I say in the book, they, they had this huge portfolio mm-hmm. of mortgage-backed bonds. And uh, when the Fed brokered the marriage between uh, J.P. Morgan and Bear Stearns. Uh, J.P. Morgan's board and their brilliant uh, CEO, uh, Jamie Dimon, said, we're just not going to take that degree of risk. So the Fed had to retrade the deal on a Sunday where the Fed made J.P. take, uh, I think it was about a billion and a quarter of the bottom risk. And then after that, the Fed stood behind yeah. it, this enormous portfolio. Right. And then if you look at what happened to that portfolio over the next few years, it paid off, and the Fed made billions. And so what I say in the book is Bear Stearns, if they could have dealt with their illiquidity, would have survived just smaller. Right. So before any of that happened, you took what many would say is probably the biggest risk of your professional career, which is you were in California at the time to hang out a shingle, leave a very lucrative career at a big Wall Street firm and start your own shop. You capture that moment and it's a great moment between you and your wife where you're, you know, you're looking out at the at the water, if I remember correctly. And she essentially knows you well enough at that point to say, listen, you got to do this. You're doing it. It's just a matter of how and when. What was inside you at that moment? What was in your head that convinced you this was the right move? As I told her, you know, when I was young, I used to like to swim. I was a lifeguard, and I dove off the, the low board a lot. Now and then I went up to the high board and dove off. And you'd walk out to the end, and you'd look down and say, why am I doing this? You know, this is why. You know, you didn't want to climb back down the ladder. Sometimes you did. And I just said it was like that. You know, I was so tempted to leave. I hated the, the climate at Bear Stearns at the time in the, in the 90s. And, and, but every time I got out to the end of the board, I looked down and then finally, I said it was enough. And I think she was afraid I'd retire and hang around the house. <laughs> <laughs> got to do something. Got to do something. Yeah, yeah, right. I took Fridays in the house, and so she would go to town on Friday. Right. But what did you see that was the opportunity? Because, you know, you mentioned Jerry Kohlberg. Jerry Kohlberg sort of sees something in 1976 with, you know, two young colleagues, Henry Kravis and George Roberts. You know, fast forward, you know, 20, 25 years later, you saw something, an opportunity around distress and around a a sort of new form of investing in many ways. What was it? 
You know, uh, a number of people have reviewed my book and said it has a lot of candor, you know, so I have to be candid. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, okay? <laughs> I just wanted to go prove I could do it. Yeah. And it was that simple. I mean, I had I hired two brilliant young men, right? And we sat around, we came up with these strategies, and trust me, they weren't good. But I was always a contrarian investor. And so I uncovered opportunities that were cheap. And I'd made a lot of money for wealthy people, and I would go to them and say, okay, uh, uh, we're going to buy this, and we want you to come in with us, and we'll take this share of the profits. None of them would do it. Mm. And, and so we did it, and we made a lot of money. And, and then I thought, dummy, you're a contrarian investor. What does that mean? Nobody else likes them, right? right. So I realized then I had to get a fund. You might say I got the memo very late. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then we were fabulous. We made high returns and we had funds every year. And, and But isn't it amazing, because I think in your book you write, that you didn't have an audited track record, right? So here you are after how many decades on Wall Street already, right? And involved in, you know, incredible deals. And then all of a sudden you're on your own, but you don't have that track record to say to somebody, see, this is what I've done. So it's amazing to have to kind of start at that level. Where were you when I needed you? (laughs) I mean, neither one of us did. There are three of us, right? And none of us had a track record. Yeah. And I mean, you got to remember, I grew up in a small town in South Georgia, right? I mean, this all stuff came to me late. Uh, but, you know, that's the truth. Anyway, what we did was we hired one of the national accounting firms. We gave them all my tax returns, all my uh, brokerage statements, and they uh, reconstructed my investment record that way. And people I knew were kind enough to right. lend their name and, and some of their cash to our first fund. And that's that really got us started. I want to go back, though, to those days at Bear Stearns, because I think what's remarkable about your career is I think Wall Street was at a different time and era. I mean, I love just reading about your early interviews. I mean, you met <laughs> you met with those four guys that were going to leave, including Ace Green, Greenberg, who became, it seems like, a pretty close friend of yours. Tell me about like the first time you walked. And it wasn't your first Wall Street firm, right, because you had been at Burnham. But tell me about that first time at Bear and well, meeting with these guys and, and what it was like in those early days. Uh, well, I got fired around Christmas time at uh, Burnham. I just didn't get along with uh, Bobby Linton. And I was a green kid. I mean, you'd, you'd say, you know, you, you better learn to behave differently, right? But I had gone there because I was impatient. I, you know, I, I wanted to immediately be successful and not get trained and waste all my time learning how to do things. That was a big mistake. So didn't work out, and I uh, had a fabulous mentor there, though, Danny Cowan, who was uh, also mentoring uh, Warren Buffett and had bought the uh, Berkshire Hathaway stock for him. And, uh, and Danny said, look, go over to Bear Stearns. Uh, Ace Greenberg's going to run it sometime, and, and he's really fabulous. And so I went over there, and that was great advice. Uh, Danny was a wonderful and long friend, longtime friend. And then Ace liked me mostly because Danny – said I was good. And then Ace took an interest in my career. And that's so important. People, young people today ask me, you know, you know, what advice to give. I said, decide where you want to be in two to five years and get a great mentor. Mm. And so as you, you know, develop, you know, fast forwarding again to Tenenbaum Capital, you build this up, you do create, to Carol's mm-hmm. point, an actual track record that you can then invest against more and more funds. You're building a firm, but you're building a different sort of firm, it feels like, in part because you're in Los Angeles. You're not, you know, back in New York. You're not sort of subject to the the wiles of uh, sort of New York thinking. What was it about being in 
on the West Coast in L.A. that that might have helped the ethos of the place? Well, like I said, I got all the memos really late. I mean, serendipity has been my friend. Uh, we, we tried to figure out what we were going to do with the firm. We realized we had to have funds so we could control the uh, the purchases of the ugly investments, mm. which is mostly what we bought. Because when people don't like them, there's anybody left to sell. And uh, after we began to to develop um, a track record, we became experts in credit. Uh, credit to me, especially distressed credit, is the most, compl- most complex asset class. You have to understand the economy, right. the industry, the company, the, the instrument, the legal processes, uh, particularly like bankruptcy processes. I'm very proud that uh, Tenenbaum Capital Partners is one of three or four firms that put uh, Caesars in bankruptcy when they were abusing the investors. So we 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 took calculated risks, and and our first two funds were returning net twenty percent a year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from there it got a lot easier. Talk to us too about your exposure to Puerto Rico, because you do have a home there. And I, a, I am a resident. You're a and, resident uh, there. For people who want to maintain their American citizenship, and you know, I'm a first-generation American. Uh, my wife's a second. And, you know, and uh, I have feelings about America. It's been a great place. And so I didn't want to give up my citizenship. But I got pretty tired of seeing my tax dollars wasted. And, uh, and, and I just liked to invest. I didn't want to build a business again. And Puerto Rico has these programs that are remarkable for people like that. And I first heard about him through my friend John Paulson, who you know, famously put a lot of money down yeah. there to very good result, I might add. So uh, when I looked into these programs, I realized as a professional investor, what I was going to mostly do is, is buy things and then at some point get capital gains. And uh, Puerto Rico is, a, is an exception to the global tax regime of the U.S. so that when you made new investments – that means that from when you move there, the future capital gains are not taxed. And, you know, this is like heaven. <laughs> and then uh, the other part of the heaven is that uh, notwithstanding uh, having lived in Malibu for 42 years, uh, part-time the last four, uh, you know, I love it at the beach. And down there, we got a lot more beach. Right. And we got these big palm trees and uh, – we live in a beautiful resort that John Paulson controls, uh, by the way. But, you know, it's to me, it's it's heavenly, you know. I've got two dogs who, when you throw the tennis balls in the pool, they dive after them. And, <laughs> and it's okay. You know, no one comes around and tells me I'm making too much noise. Right. <laughs> but what about, I'm just curious, I mean, you lived through a couple of hurricanes, right, down there. Um, and just the problems, the economic problems, the financial problems of Puerto Rico. What's the solution? You see it, you know, firsthand. I'm just curious what you think. Well, you know, Puerto Rico is not unique. You could look at certain states here in the U.S., and I don't want to get a lot of hate mail, who are extraordinarily poorly run, where there's waste and my suspects. I I used to think someone was dumb. Now I realize they were crooked, right? So there's corruption and there's incompetence in all political units, almost all, I should say it that way. But uh, Puerto Rico... Uh, was uh, extraordinary. They brought that to a high level of, uh, of accomplishment. And Puerto Rico has extraordinary uh, uh, merit. Uh, it's the only large Caribbean island. It's also a commercial center. Mm-hmm. So 
and, and manufacturing is maybe 30% of the, um, of the GNP, mostly uh, technology. It's, uh, uh, people don't realize this. Uh, it's in medical devices, pharmaceutical. So I saw really terrific possibilities there in terms of tourism and agriculture and technology, uh, if only it were run well. Right. And uh, uh, we did very well investing in the bonds because there is basically something down there that has merit. Now we've had something rather unusual, uh, you know, a tropical country that had a bloodless coup. Right. And, and, and don't be mistaken, this was a bloodless coup. Yeah. People went out in the streets. They didn't break windows. They didn't burn cars. I mean, hell, in Paris, they do that on Saturdays. Right, right. So, uh, and the governor, who was very tenacious, was forced to leave. And we got lucky because just prior to that, his key aides quit to try to save him, right? So they fell on the sword, and then he got pushed on one. Right. So now we have a reluctant governor. And she has said she's not running for re-election and wants to do what's good for Puerto Rico. This strikes me as a unique opportunity in the history of democracies mm. and uh, where someone who didn't have to pander to the voters you know, maybe can do what's needed. And uh, you have this independent commission like we had here in New York years ago when New York didn't have discipline. And to the extent they can get a truly balanced budget and they can make the reforms they need – it would be exceptional. You know, right. I'm, I'm putting more of my money into Puerto Rico. We'll see. And what about Wall Street today? You know, this many decades on, you know, I think about the various issues, to, to say the least, big questions, both existentially, but also more minor. You know, you cross paths over the course of your career with Jeffrey Epstein. That mm -hmm. clearly is one of the threads and narratives that is very much talked about on, on Wall Street right now. We're 10 years on from the financial crisis. There are questions around income inequality and Wall Street's uh, role in all of that. What do you make of Wall Street right now? Well, are we going to talk about Epstein or Wall Street? Come on. Pick one. Pick one. Start with either. I'll take Wall Street. Okay. All right. Uh, and you talk about thread sounds more like a rope. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, look, human nature is one of the great uh, non-changing uh, scientific uh, assumptions you can make. And when we talk about political systems, you know, you see all the – we see these young people now in favor of, uh, of socialism. You know, the, the humans like power. They like money. They like sex. I can say that on your program? Yes. Oh, good. So I have to be so careful now. We're not in the college. That's lucky. <laughs> We've said the word before. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you want to look at like basic 500 years, say, is that long enough? I mean, I'm not even that old. And uh, – you know, th these are themes that run across all kinds of industries and behaviors. Wall Street, because of the sheer amount of money that flows through and is sitting around, attracts scoundrels. You know, um, I think it was Willie Sutton, who was a pioneer uh, bank robber. It's when banks were early in the West, you know, right. and they're just starting up. And he started robbing banks. He was a specialist. And people said, you know, when they caught him, they said, Mr. Sutton, why was it you robbed banks? He said, because that's where the money is. <laughs> well, that's the thing about Wall Street. The temptation is rife. And so you're going to get a lot of scoundrels there. But also some of the most noble and wonderful people I've ever met who were philanthropic. I mean, uh, we used to make 
what most people would think is a nice salary. But we made a multiple of that in bonuses that were you know, a lot of people thought subjective. Since I got big bonuses, I thought they were accurate. <laughs> but but Ace Greenberg said, you know, you, you partners are making a lot of money. There are people in the world who aren't as lucky as you are. Five percent of your bonus is going to go to charity. And if you don't do it, we're going to do it for you. Now, have you ever heard of a big company doing that? No. Okay. So the the philanthropists, much like Michael Bloomberg, you know, and and uh, Steve Schwartzman, and John Paulson, people giving hundreds of millions or billions to good works. Now, you know, Karl Marx didn't count on that, did he? I have to say, like. We have these conversations a lot, and I'm for capitalism. I think it's great that people can create companies and make money. But we're I, with the right company. <laughs> <laughs> but right, and I have a boss that gives back a lot, and mm. and we are encouraged to do the same thing. And just to be fair, Michael Bloomberg, of course, the owner of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. But I, to get to Jason's point, Michael, what do we do though? Because you write in this book, I believe that for democracy to work, it is necessary to have an engaged and informed electorate. Tough to do in our complex world, especially in large countries with diverse constituencies. How do we break the gap of education? I feel like that has really divided, you know, a gap in our country. How do we do that? Well, because not everybody has the same opportunities. Was it Aristotle who wrote this originally? I think it. I think two thousand years ago. You know, good for him. I went to trade schools. I just started reading him recently, but he said it all. He said that. Uh, he called them cities because that's what they were then. If for a city to have good leadership, the the voting uh, people have to have an education to make intelligent choices. What a what a timeless idea, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the other thing that he you said, used to have to take civic exams, right? Well, or well, we studied well, civics. Well, well, it used to be you had the Romans in the Senate and you had the landowners in England, you know. So it wasn't democratic, right? But you know, he also. Aristotle said democracy is a political system designed to help the poor and will eventually implode. So in Rome, they started out, you know, when the soldiers came back and they weren't taking over countries anymore, they were restive. So they gave them bread, you know, and then they got more restive and they they started to give them pork. And that's how political pork was named. Okay, And so this has been going on longer than we've been alive. And the solution, I believe— the only solution is a separation of power and uh, competition. If if government, industry, and labor are not dominant, uh, any one of them, and so they have to always be competing, you know, for uh, I guess the same vote in the long run. Uh, then, then to me, that creates a moderate course, which to me is the best uh, solution. Uh, if you study countries that succeed, generally they have a large middle class who have a stake in the system that they want to preserve. And uh, uh, I, I believe very strongly that education is needed for that. And the idea that people don't have to be literate or understand uh, how uh, our government works, to me, is a terrible mistake. So where's the power balance off right now in the United States? Is it more government? Is it more corporations? You won't like the answer. One of the biggest problems is for-profit 24-hour media. Hmm. Media, back before you two were born, uh, used to require to get licenses renewed every three years or so that you had a news program. Think about it. They'd have the 5 o'clock news, the 6 o'clock news, and they had to do that to get their license. Then somebody realized they could make money out of news. 
And about the time they started making money out of news, where a lot of it became like showmanship, and uh, you might think I'm attacking somebody in particular, uh, the, uh, we got the 24-hour cycle of news, which, you know, there's more news capacity than there are events. Yeah. And like I one of my favorite saying is that you never heard somebody announce that no baby fell down a well today. Right. So everybody's looking for something dramatic to say. And then social media just exacerbated it. So if you look at that combination of like a huge suck, sucking noise for, for some kind of salacious news and add to that the absolutely irresponsible protection politicians have for political speech, they can lie, they can Photoshop you, mm-hmm. they can call you terrible names, and they're, they're, they're not subject to any legal mm. thing. To me, this is nuts. You, you, you can't sell uh, – uh, vitamin pills with that, right? You can't right. sell stocks, like but you can become the, a political yeah. leader. Right. Well, how dumb is that? Mm. All right. So wrapping up, what's the what was the biggest surprise to you in, in writing this book? What did you sort of either learn about yourself, learn about your world, learn about history that when you when this went off to the publisher, you thought, hmm, did I didn't see that coming? I have told people who've had uh, even just interesting lives, write a book. And, and keep your files because you'll learn a great deal about your motivations and your behavior. I just felt that I had caromed through life. You know, I came to this, you know, Yogi Berra said, you come to a, a fork in the road, take it. And, and I, I hadn't realized how I made these decisions. Mm-hmm. If I had had that degree of introspection early, it would have been very helpful. And, and when I saw a pattern in my life, then I started asking my, my successful friends about theirs. And then I could see this pattern. Well, hell, it took me a long time, didn't it? Right. <laughs> Mia culpa. <laughs> I don't know. Reading your book, it seems like you lived a pretty full life and have given back and really explored. I mean, you've been a real explorer of the world, it seems. Well, uh, the Explorer Club is honoring me uh, tonight with a book signing. So well, there you go. There you go. That was Michael Tenenbaum, private equity investor and also the author of Risk, Living on the Edge. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.